You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. I'm Matty. I'm part of the team here. And I was reading through uh, Mark recently, the Gospel of Mark. And it sparked a question that has led to some really interesting stuff. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share that question with you. But first, I'm going to read through the portion of Mark that, that sparked it in the first place. So if you've got your Bibles with you, turn to Mark chapter 1. I'll just give you a moment to get there. Um, so it's in the New Testament, so towards the back, Mark chapter 1 from the very beginning. It's hard to know with phones. You know, Have people got there yet? Are they just on candy crushes? Oh, man. It's... Right, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John, the Baptist, appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the River Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey, and this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And the question that really came alive in my mind, and it's amazing it's taken this long, is why John the Baptist? This is Jesus' story. Back to verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. But literally the very next verse, we've changed person already. Verse 2, I will send a messenger ahead of you. And then if you jump to verse 4, and so John the Baptist appeared. And you have to think, surely if there's anyone in history who didn't need a warm-up act, it is Jesus. And the four uh, Gospels are a bit de- different in all their details because what the author is trying to um, accomplish are a bit different. But all of them pin Jesus' ministry squarely on John's shoulders. In Matthew, he starts in chapters one and two with Jesus' backstory, which we hear a lot about at Christmas. But then before Jesus enters the scene as an adult, in chapter three, verse one, he jumps in. In those days, John the Baptist came. In Luke, he spends just a few verses addressing his friend who he's compiled it for. And then uh, chapter one, verse five, he jumps in not with Jesus' birth story, but with John's birth story. That's weird, isn't it? Getting your own birth story in Jesus' book. And then in John, uh, the last of the Gospels, the account starts with these five epic verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and it goes on. It's all this heady stuff. And then verse 6, when it comes back down to planet Earth, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, not Jesus. And I've realized as I've explored this that there's an incredibly important reason that the Father, in his wisdom, chose John to prepare for Jesus. And it's significant not just for them, but it's significant for us here today as well. So who was John? Well, he was uh, Jesus' very slightly older cousin. Uh, He was a bit extreme. He lived out in the desert. Uh, He wore clothing made of camel's hair, which I think sounds absolutely terrible. I don't even like wool jumpers. Um, He ate what he could find, which seems to have been mainly insects and and honey. And uh, if you're wondering, that wasn't normal back then either. He was a prophet. He was was set apart to be a counter cultural spokesperson for God. But the most important thing about him was his message and how it prepared the way for Jesus. There'd been some oddballs in the Bible before John, 
That wasn't what set him apart. Before Jesus has ever preached, we're told that Jerusalem, the capital, and all the surrounding countryside are flooding out to hear John and his message. And the message back in Mark chapter 1, verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So repentance, which I'll come back to and properly explain in a moment, is a really big deal. And the more you read the Bible and look for it, the more you see this. It's all over the Old Testament, but for time's sake, I'm just going to jump into three little spots in the New Testament that if you were wondering, if you were thinking, maybe it's not a big deal, I'm about to prove you wrong. It is. So first, Luke chapter 17. You can jump to these if you want, but I'm, I'm going to fly through them, so don't worry if you can't get there. Uh, Luke chapter 17, and this is verses 29 and 30. The context here is that when John was preaching, a lot of the common folk flooded out to hear him, and they, they responded. They did this thing called repentance. But a lot of the religious leaders, they were interested enough to come and listen, but they rejected the message. They didn't want to repent. Most of one group repents, most of the other doesn't. Listen to what Luke says about how these two groups then go on to respond to Jesus based on what they've done with John. All the people, even the tax collectors, which is a way of saying the worst of the worst, uh, not fair to tax collectors today really, but it's a bit of historical context there. Um, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. How sad is that? Because they had not been baptized by John. Luke is linking the way that people react to Jesus and his message to the way they have first reacted to John's message and his call to repent. So if you're here this morning with any kind of interest in Jesus, that probably means this repentance thing is a big deal. The second one is Mark chapter 1 verse 14 where, where Mark tells us about the start of Jesus' ministry when he, when he finally gets going. What's his message? Um, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus' starting point is where John left off. Now, Jesus adds a lot more. He expands and builds on John's message. But his starting point is repentance as well. And then the third one, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38. Here we're jumping in to the birth of the church. The Holy Spirit has just come and filled those first believers with his presence. Many of you will know the story. People are wondering what's going on. And Peter gets up, his first ever sermon, and 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus or want to. They're like, right, we need to respond to this. God's power is on the move. And in verse 37, it says this. When the people heard, uh, heard this, sorry, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Guess what Peter's going to say? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, which is us, by the way, for all whom the Lord will call. Repent and be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So why John before Jesus? Because something about this message of repentance prepares people for both encounter with Jesus himself and encounter with the Holy Spirit. So it's a big deal. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at repentance first. We're going to, number one, look at what it is. Um, second, where's number two? Oh, don't worry, got it. Um, why it's so important for us today, because clearly it is important. And three, what response to this call looks like. So 
what is it? Hopefully it's not a shock to anyone that Jesus wasn't English um, and the Bible wasn't written in English either. Uh, so wherever we read the word repent in the Bible, we're, not, we're reading a translation, aren't we? And sometimes things get a bit lost in translation. So briefly, stay, stay with me, friends. I've even got a little diagram, which I think, we, can we get it up? No? Whee! Guys, I imported that triangle myself. Chose the blue, everything. That is about as technically able as I have ever been in my life. So sort of all, all for love. Um, so when we read repent in the New Testament, almost um, all the time, it's that word up there, which I'm not going to be able to start. I, I don't speak Greek. Um, but what it means is to change one's mind. But in the Old Testament, we're reading a translation from a completely different language, of course. It wasn't written in Greek. It was written in Hebrew. And there's actually two different words that come up that would normally be translated repent. And my Hebrew is even worse than my Greek, so there's absolutely no chance that I'm going to give this a good shot. Or can we have the next two words up as well? Look at those like dots and lines. There's absolutely no chance. <laughs> Don't pretend you know what that says. But you can see, see where I'm going. The first word is about regret. Um, to be sorry, to be contrite. Oh, no. I've put to change one's mind twice. Never do it on the morning of the talk, friends. It's like recipe for disaster. <laughs> the one on the left, I'm going to have to give it a shot now, aren't I? Naham? <laughs> Naham? Sure, why not? Maybe. Yeah, whatever. Um, sorry, that's not to change one's mind. It's to regret or to be sorry. It's about contrition. So the words behind the Greek, if you like, the original Hebrew words are around regret and returning. Let's get rid of those slides. That didn't go as well as I thought. So if we, if we want to understand what repenting in the Bible looks, it's a synthesis of those three things. And you might think that looks a little bit formulaic. I don't think it is at all, but often it's examples, isn't it, that really helps us get our heads around these things. So um, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 15, um, verse 11. And we're going to be in and out of this story a fair bit. So do turn there if you've got, if you want to. So Luke chapter 15, verse 11. It's a story of a father and two sons, but it's one in particular we're looking at. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Use your imagination. What does that mean? After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in, the, in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I love that story, and I think it might be the best example of repentance in the Bible. Let's just recap and add a little bit of context. So we've got this young man who's living in a wealthy Middle Eastern family uh, in a culture where respect for your elders and especially your parents was a really, really big deal. And when his dad dies, he's set to inherit, but he doesn't want to wait for that. 
So he uh, wants to live it up. He wants to do what he wants right now. And he goes to his dad and says, the equivalent of it would be better, really, if you could just kick the bucket. Can I have my money now? Think this through. In that culture, the eldest child got a double portion. So his older brother's going to get two-thirds. He's going to get a third. And back then, even more than today, they didn't, they didn't have bank accounts. Your stuff, your money was your stuff. So in asking this, he's basically asking his dad, I want you to sell a third of the buildings, a third of the land, a third of the flocks. It's a big ask. Everything the father's worked so hard for. And incredibly, surprisingly, the father goes, okay. And as soon as the son gets what he's after, he liquidates his assets and just heads for the hills. Free of his father, free of responsibility. And spending the fruit of his father's money. Uh, sorry, the um, hand over fist. And maybe he had a great time, who knows, but frivolous living and a, and a famine and economic crisis means that the money dries up and with it is new friends and certainly all the fun. And he finds himself far from home, at absolute rock bottom. Pigs in, in his culture, a Jewish culture, Jews didn't even touch pork, let alone go anywhere near a pig. And the only job he can get is to feed pigs. And he's jealous of their food. Jesus is painting a picture. It could not be worse for this young man. He must have been so ashamed. And then we have this in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he begins to think differently to change his mind. That Greek word metanoia or however you say it, to, to begin to change your mind. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants had food to spare? And here I am starving to death. He just thinks, this is ridiculous. What am I doing? Have you ever thought anything along those lines? Why am I still angry at them? What was I thinking when I said that? Why did I buy that? Why did I spend the last two hours flicking through videos on my phone? And only two of them were even funny. Why did I get into a relationship with that person? Why did I lie in that moment? It just came out. Where are my, why are my priorities so out of line with everything that I say is important to me? I like one from me. Why do I always get that fifth plate at the Chinese buffet? <laughs> Every time I'm like, no more than three. Every time. Time for change, man. The son is having one of those moments where his thinking is beginning to change. And no, all it says is when he came to his senses. It doesn't say it was, was it a eureka moment? Was it something that just dawned on him over time as he fed these slops every day to these pigs? It doesn't matter how you get there. Repentance is the beginning of change in our thinking. But of course, it's not just that, is it? The other word is about regret, about being sorry. It's not a cold, logical equation. And we've got in verses 18 and 19 of the story, the son saying to himself, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. There's, there's an awareness that he's wrong. I've sinned. And that's what sin is. It's everything that's wrong with us, the, the thoughts, the attitudes, the words, the behavior that fall short of God's immense goodness and his hopes and his plans for our lives. I've fluffed it, Dad. I'm sorry. What he's realizing isn't just that something needs to change. It's that he needs to change. And so repentance is, yes, a desire for change, but that is linked to and it's rooted in acknowledgement of personal responsibility. 
But it's not just that either. This shift isn't um, just a perspective. It's not just a rational thing. It leads to him actually doing something about it. Verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. And this isn't some step-by-step formula. I realize when you break things down, it can make it sound a bit cold and, and formulaic. I think it's way more just normal and human and emotional and organic than that. What an idiot. What am I doing? Oh, I need to do something about this. The point is the son felt this unction to do something. If he'd realized I'm a mess, I need change, and then just carried on feeding the pigs for the next 20 years, that wouldn't have been repentance. For him, it was, I should never have come. I'm leaving. He couldn't do a lot about his situation, but he could do something. And that's actually a really, really important point about repentance. Repentance isn't fixing anything. It's heading home. We can't fix all our mess. The son, can you imagine when he arrived back at his father's? Do you think he was suddenly fixed? All that shame gone, all, all, all the habits he'd built up over those years of wild living. Of course he wasn't, but he was in the right place. I have to go to hospital for medication every month. I don't think when I get in the car and head to hospital that I am fixing myself. I'm just going where I need to go for someone else to sort me out. What would the equivalent be for us this morning? If we allow the words of Jesus and the words of the Bible and the stirrings of the Spirit, maybe our consciences, to speak to us and we begin to acknowledge that, yeah, you know what, we do all need change. Is it getting rid of that app? Is it breaking off that relationship? Getting accountable over that habit or spending pattern? Is it finally admitting that we need help? Maybe finally admitting that pattern of behavior that you kind of call, yeah, it's a bit of a problem, I'll get to it. Actually admitting, no, that is an addiction. Committing not to speaking that way. Apologizing to that person, even though it was ages ago. Even though you think they were partly to blame. Repentance is being honest with ourselves about the ways that we've been wrong. Letting ourselves down. We've ignored God. It's, it's letting ourselves feel it and face it. And it's turning for home turning into Jesus. In a nutshell, sorry, the, so why is it so important? In a nutshell, it's this. The Bible tells us that we were made for complete intimacy with God. Actually, we were made to live a life that is qualitatively exactly like that of Jesus's. But we don't, do we? I don't. Maybe you do. There's a distance between us and God. And God isn't the problem. The problem is that people, all of us, are far more like the wayward son than at times we'd like to admit. Ever since Adam and Eve, humanity has just been replaying the same story. Every generation. And Isaiah puts it this way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. In the West, we've almost made a, a religion of this. Find yourself. Be true to yourself. Do what makes you happy. Live your truth. As though seven billion different truths could all be true. The greatest problem in each of our lives, if we're honest, is the way that we have sinned and strayed from God, our Father, and his goodness. And of course, the ways that other people have done the same and have hurt us in the process. The Old Testament is the story of God calling to his children year after year, come back. And the New Testament, and especially the Gospels, are the story of Jesus taking on flesh, flesh and coming to get us back. 
Isaiah finishes that sentence, starts, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. All of your and all of my waywardness, brokenness, and sin, God has dealt with by taking it onto himself and into the grave. And in its place, he's invited us to share in the life of Jesus. And having made a way back for us, he's just calling us, come on, come home. The whole time, the wayward son in this parable uh, was busy living his own way. The father loved him from day one. But as long as he wouldn't return, the father's love had absolutely no material benefit in his life, or at least none he was aware of. Repentance is so important, not because as we do it, we immediately fix ourselves, but because it turns us to Jesus. It turns us for home. So what are the blockages? Surely repentance is a no-brainer then. If it turns us into Jesus, I mean, follow it, that's the whole deal. Surely we should all be desperate to do it, but of course it's a bit more complicated than that. If repenting puts you on a collision course with the love of Jesus, you better believe that Satan is going to throw the kitchen sink at you to make sure that you don't engage with it. History tells us that sure enough, when John the Baptist was preaching his message, not everyone took it on. True then, true now. And I want to come into land by just looking at five of what I think are maybe the most common ways that we can end up avoiding this repentance thing, which actually is so wonderful for us. So the first one is ignorance. Some people can genuinely, they just can't see their need. And if you don't need much, why turn? And that might be maybe, you know, you're just quite new to Jesus. Maybe there's, I mean, on all of us, there are these strong influences, aren't there, of our culture, of our family, of our friendship group. And perhaps there's just things about our lives and we haven't clocked that they don't really line up with the life of Jesus. And that's why we need to be in our Bibles. That's why we need to be in community, why we need to be in small groups. If you can get to one, please do engage as much as you can in relationships with people who will be honest with us when we ask them questions like, am I right on this? What, what are you seeing? But of course, ignorance can also be willful and deliberate because it can be rooted in pride. And the, the most extreme version of this I ever come across was a cab driver on the Isle of Man, um, 50 to 60 years old, and I'm a chatterbox, so we got chatting, got onto God. And we started talking about, you know, sin. And he was like, yeah, I've never done anything wrong. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. He's like, no, really. What, you've never told a lie? You've never even stretched the truth? No. Never hurt anyone? No. And, you know, the longer it went on, I, was, I don't think you're joking. You actually believe there's nothing wrong in your life. I was like, this is, and you know what? It was, um, it was actually quite sobering that that's even possible. Needless to say, when conversation turned to Jesus, there was no room at the inn. And we need to be especially, especially careful about pride, not just in taxis, but in the church. Because people who rejected John's message at the time were the religious. Convinced of their own righteousness, their pride had completely blinded them to their own need. And of course, if there's nothing wrong, there's nothing to put right. No need to change, nothing to regret, nothing to turn from. They rejected John's call to repent, and guess what? Absent the basic level of honesty required to see their own need, when Jesus turns up, God himself, they reject him too. Let's not be like them. Let's be in our Bibles. Let's be seeking Jesus, and Jesus, just humble me. 
Give me eyes to see. Let's be in church listening with open minds when people are preaching on Sunday. Let's be asking our friends really, like, I promise I won't bite your head off. Be honest. Am I right about this? Let's not let ignorance numb us to our need for Jesus and stop us from turning into him. I think the second thing is that we can avoid repenting because we're worried about the reception that we're going to get. That's definitely the son, isn't it, in the story? Can you imagine how nervous he must have been as he trudges for home after all those mistakes and all those years? And he's, he's just rehearsing how he's going to apologize, playing it all out. What if he's furious? What if he won't even talk to me? At the very least, surely he's going to be severely disappointed. Let me read my favorite verse from the story. This is Luke 15, 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. He starts spluttering his way through his apology, and his dad's not even listening. He's like, you bring, bring the best robe. You, the sandals, you get the party started. All that fear that the son's been carrying around, it turns out the whole time, the father was just desperate for him to come home. If you're nervous about relating to God because you're worried that he's angry with you, I want to tell you, I promise you, he's not. What kind of a doctor would get angry with his or her patients for being sick? The fact that we're in a mess, that's why he came. He didn't leave heaven uh, to die on the cross for you so that we could come back to him only to slap us as we do. The third thing is we avoid it because there are some things we just don't want to let go of. <laughs> some things we just don't want to turn from. We know, we know we should turn, but we don't want to. Another man who heard John's message was King Herod. In chapter 6 uh, in Mark, we read about how John had called Herod out. He's a brave guy, calling the king out for unlawfully marrying his brother's wife. And Herod knew he was wrong. We read in verse 20 that Herod knew John was a righteous and holy man. In fact, it even says Herod actually found John fascinating. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. God was calling and he was using John. Herod could feel some kind of tug on him, but he wasn't going to give up this woman because he wanted her. So instead, he put John in jail. I know I've done this one, not arrested a prophet, but heard God in a preach, in the Bible, some tug on me during the day, and I've just ignored it. I'm not ready to give that up. Maybe tomorrow. But the danger with that is that like Herod, what we ignore, we can become numb to. God may keep on calling, but in the end, we may stop hearing. We harden. What an awful thing to become numb to God. Years later, in fact, Herod gets to meet Jesus himself. And he's excited. Jesus is on trial. So this is Luke 23, verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length. But he made no answer. Why does Jesus say nothing to this man who wants to hear from him? He spoke to Pilate. He spoke to the sinners either side. What I think is going on here is Jesus is like, I've called you. Did it through John. You've had him in prison. You've been listening to him for months. I've got nothing to say. 
Same message, it's still there, falls in your court. I know Herod is an extreme case, but I don't want to be like that man. Jesus, help me repent, help me want to repent. If Jesus is stirring anything in you now or this morning or at any point today, don't wait, don't put it off. Don't harden up and resist. Put it on the table and do business with Jesus. The fourth thing, oh, this is me. We can distract ourselves out of repenting. Sometimes we can acknowledge our need. We can even intend to repent. We can even start turning into Jesus, begin to engage with change. But of course, facing our mess is pretty uncomfortable, isn't it? It's not fun. The way back for the son, put him on a collision course with his dad, with the one person who could actually help him and fix him. So it was good news. It ended up being his salvation, but it wasn't fun. He didn't have a lot of options, though. This was literally last chance saloon, so he, he couldn't avoid his reality anymore, and so he went through with it. But what if he'd had an iPhone and enough money for a takeaway? Would he have headed back that day? Oh, phew, that's better. I'll head back tomorrow. If I, I know I can be guilty of this. If I just get busy enough at work, and work's good, right? And if I can get my hands on enough good food, call enough friends, be busy even at church, and maybe wrap up the day with, with a bit of TV, something light, you know, nothing too heavy. Ah, that day was all right. I'm not saying that, that we always intend that it's a conscious, conscious thing, but it can be the program that's running below the surface. If we're not careful, it can be the most banal things, sugar, social media, or even the, the good things in our lives that we misuse to numb us up, to entertain us and distract us through another day. And maybe it's distraction then that we need to turn from. Maybe that's what we need to repent of. To be still long enough to engage with where we really are at, how we really are doing, and to recognize our need for Jesus. The fifth thing, the last one coming into land, is that we simply don't know how good the deal is. We don't know what we're missing when we stay away. And if we did, I think a load of that other stuff would just get washed away. I've got... Uh, no way of doing Jesus justice. No way. But just to get us thinking, what if I told you that this suitcase contains two million quid? But so, two mil right there, friends. I bet you for some of you this is your first two mil. Hands up, ever seen two million before? No? You have now? Um, and what if I said I'm going to give it to you? One of you, like you, you, you specifically. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> And I can see some of you are dubious. Um, Matty, based on the average wage of an assistant pastor, the cost of living, inflation, and the fact that you spend quite a lot of money on food, you'd need to have saved for about 700 years for that to be 2 million quid. All right, fine. Maybe I found it. No, because then I'd have to plan it, hand it into the police. I was given it, but it is 2 million quid. Let's just, let's just imagine that that's 2 million pounds. If you really believed that, that there was 2 million there and you were going to get it, what would your reaction be? Anyone else done the fantasizing thing where you're like, what would I do if I won the lottery? Just me. Because I was preparing this talk, I realized that if I was given two million pounds this morning, I would probably be a lot more excited than I have been any time recently about the fact that Jesus loves me and I'm saved and I'm his forever. I'm not trying to beat anyone up with this. I've just said, like, that's, that's true of me. I'm just saying that, that we don't know how good we've got it. 
we're like toddlers. You know what, what that thing little kids do when they open the birthday present and it's amazing and they just start eating the wrapping paper? <laughs> Money like that excites us because we get, we can get our heads around what it is and what it means. We, we know what some money does, so we can imagine what a lot of money does. I've had a holiday, so I can imagine a world tour. I've got accommodation. Well, this is like my dream house mortgage-free. I've helped my family out before, but I can really solve some problems now. But what we're offered in Jesus is just on a completely different plane. And maybe that's why we find it a little bit harder to, to engage with and find so exciting. Listen to how Jesus, sorry, how John... Um, who wrote John's Gospel, talks about what Jesus offers us. This is in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 of John. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, have the right to become children of God. And rights aren't about how you feel. You have the right to sit at the table of God. You have a right to relate to God as your dad in heaven forever. You have a right to the Holy Spirit, to his joy, to his peace. If you haven't checked out Thomas's recent talk on, on the gift of the Holy Spirit, he, he unpacks some of this. But we get Jesus's life, not someday, today. Anything Jesus had, his peace, his joy, we can have. I heard Mike Tyson recently, um, the boxer. He's not a Christian, I don't think, by the way. But um, it will be relevant. I heard Mike Tyson who earned so much money, he once won 30 mil in a fight, and he lost it all. And the interviewer was asking, what was that like, losing all your money and spending three years in prison? And he said, best three years of my life. And you could see this young man grappling with that. He was like, really? And Mike, I won't try and do his accent, but Mike goes, money don't mean nothing if you ain't got your peace. Everything Jesus has is ours. How about this one? You will never die. Well, you probably will. <laughs> we, we all will. But if you're standing clothed in Jesus' righteousness and love, a full member of the family of God, then he will do exactly the same for you that he did for Jesus. Death, as Paul the Apostle put it, is simply to fall asleep, confident that one day the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will raise you too. God doesn't leave his children in the grave. When Jesus comes back and recreates a new heaven and a new earth, and it will be a physical place, by the way, that is beyond our wildest dreams, not some kind of like cloud city or whatever, you will be there. And I know some of this, especially some of the future stuff, it can be hard to get our heads around. But it is for now. It starts now. And I think the more we repent and the more we come to him and the more we taste and see that the Lord is good, the easier it becomes. Repenting the first time can be hard, but as we learn to experience, actually, every time this goes well, every time he welcomes me, every time he's longing to see me, it can become a habit and even a joy that is, is so good, such a wonderful part of our lives. It doesn't matter what the reason is that we might at times avoid change, avoid facing our mess, feeling the sorrow over it and turning to God. Whatever it is, Jesus is calling. He's waiting patiently. And as long as he's calling you, there's always time to respond. As long as you're still here and still breathing, there's always time to turn to him, to repent. And it could be that you're here this morning, and as far as you know, you have never repented. Not really. I just want to say there is, there is an open door to it today. We're going to make some time. And I'd encourage you to get your stuff, 
on the table with Jesus, to come to him. And if you're feeling, whatever that feels like, dissatisfaction with where you're at, you're just aware there's some stuff that's awry in your life, I want to tell you, Jesus is the real deal. You can't fix it. But if you'll turn to him, you can. In the words of Peter, after the Holy Spirit came, I read them earlier, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So if you've not done that, you don't have to wait around. And actually, even the baptism piece, if if that has stirred something in you, we'd love to chat to you about that after the service this morning. But it could be that you've done all that. I have. You know, I have been baptized. I have repented. I have started to move towards Jesus. Maybe you have too. But you know right now today there are things that Jesus is putting his finger on. And repentance isn't a one-stop shot. You know, when, when a marriage gets hard... It doesn't mean that the people involved didn't say their vows right the first time. Quite possibly they did. What it might mean, and more probably means, is that somewhere along the line they've stopped committing to each other, stopped loving each other and serving each other daily in those small ways. And that's how it is with repentance. We turn and we turn and we turn. And the more we do it, the easier it gets. Because the more we do it, the more of Jesus we open ourselves up to. Jesus wants relationship with each person here so much that death on a cross didn't put him off chasing it. His face and his heart are turned to us this morning. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Will we turn back to him? Would you stand, please? And we're just going to make some time uh, for the Holy Spirit and to respond. Jesus, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. I can't speak for everyone else, but for myself, I just say, Jesus, I come to you. I repent. Would you just come, Holy Spirit? Guys, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. talked about repentance and the fact that actually often it's so helpful for us if we do something in response and I don't want to dictate to you what that's going to be but the band are going to start playing um, and it's not to create any hype it's just so that there's a bit of anonymity just so that um, there's a bit of noise for you if it's kneeling if it's coming out to the side to get prayed for sometimes some people just feel like oh, I need to say this to someone they need to confess great, we're just going to make some space. If you just want to sing along with the words, great, do that. So as the music starts, I just want to invite you, if there's anything that God has been doing in you this morning and anything you want to respond to, we're going to make space right now. And if you do come out to the sides, if you do want to be prayed for, we'll make sure that people in small groups come up and and pray for you, guys for guys and girls for girls. So we'll just do that now and make a bit of space.
It's evident that the Holy Spirit is just moving throughout the room. It's such a beautiful thing to come and repent. 
individually, but corporately as well for the church. But there may be some of you here that are just a bit unsure about what's going on. That's totally okay. Um, yeah, we just love Jesus and want to meet with him. And that's just all that we're doing. There'll be some of you that want to continue to respond in this way. But there may be others of you that um, would value someone praying for you. The amazing thing about coming to Jesus is that when we come to him in repentance, he forgives us, he welcomes us. He doesn't leave us just there, he, he sends us on. He, um, yeah, he wants us to love him and live for him. And the prayer team this morning had a number of words around courage that people need God's courage to live um, more fully for him and for his kingdom to live righteously and to live well yeah so there might be some of you in this room today that will just value someone standing alongside beside you for whatever the Holy Spirit might be doing in you so now is your moment if, if you value prayer um, just come up to the sides and to the someone in the life of the church who's in a small group will come and join you. You don't necessarily need to tell them what's going on, but we can just bless what the Holy Spirit's doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's no way to repent, guys. It's just you and Jesus. So don't... sake of it but if you are sitting there thinking oh, I do want to respond <laughs> somehow like do something like that that young man did when he headed home then yeah I guess now is the moment come Lord Jesus Follow the link.